So how is everyone this morning? Be nice to just do this forever, wouldn't it? Just kind of meet, get up every day, hang out together, sing, talk, share. Do it all over again. <clears throat> but, as you'll find out this morning, Lord's got things for us. <clears throat> so, what I'd like you to do is put your head next to the person next to you, maybe one or two of you together, I mean two or three, and ask the Lord to speak to your heart this morning, would you? Ask Him to touch your life, ask Him to really use this morning uh, to imprint our heart and our minds with what God has for us. So please do that for a few minutes. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for giving us this place to meet. We want to thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. What a privilege, Lord, it is to know you, to know that we're your children, to know that we can refer to you in the most affectionate terms as Daddy and Father. We thank you, Lord, <clears throat> that there's no good thing that you withhold from those who follow you. Not one thing will you ever withhold from us. We just ask you, Lord, that you'd bless our time here this morning and speak to our hearts. We want you to be glorified in our lives, Lord. We want to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Please turn to John 17. John chapter 17 and verse 18. John 17 and verse 18, it says this. The title of this message this morning is Think Globally and Act Locally. I stole the title from a bumper sticker. Okay, I readily admit that. Think Globally, Act Locally. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning is I, you know, last night we talked about, of course, obviously, that our life is very short and very brief, and I don't know if you noticed this this morning, but I certainly did when I was at breakfast this morning. Um, you all have a very visual picture, and once I tell you this, you're not going to forget it, and you're going to think about it all weekend. You're going to have a very visual picture at every meal of what you're going to become. And it isn't very pretty. The body growing old and decaying and walking through a line like this is not a lot to look forward to. And also realize that one day you cannot stop the physical decay that goes on in our body. 
And it takes those individuals, many of them in the line, about four times as long to get their breakfast and get on with life as it does you. That's why you want to give God your youth. Because when you're older and when all of us are older, there's just no energy left to give. There's no fire left to give. Except for those who are like Billy Graham or others who have lived their life all their youth, then the Lord just seems to give them an extraordinary ability even when they have Parkinson's and they can barely stand behind a microphone. God gives them just enough strength and they do His will and then they almost fall down. It's said of John Wesley that in the last years he was preaching he was still riding a horse at 82 years of age to travel and speak and they would lift him up out of his chair and he would stand and all of a sudden there would be supernatural energy was given to him and then he would sit in an exhaustion and sleep for several hours and then get back up and do it again. But just remember, remember, you know, not many of us, to be honest, well, I thought this was unique as I was sitting in the cafeteria this morning, I thought, well, you know, I am seldom, seldom around people this old. Seldom. Seldom do we have, you know, most of our parents aren't that age. We don't have a reminder of how, wow, we're just falling apart. Our bodies are just, you know, the Bible tells us that, that the outer man is decaying day after day, the inner man is being renewed. And so this is why it's so critical that you give the Lord now the best of you because... You know, to be honest, as time goes on, there's no best of you left to give. Not physically. Give Him your heart. You'll be 75 giving Him your heart. But when we're this age, we can give Him our body, mind, heart, everything. When we're older, we can give Him our heart and our little left of our body and we can give Him our mind. Hopefully, we'll have it left. It's important to see how... You know, I was as I was watching a couple ladies walk by, and I was thinking about all of you. I, I was thinking, wow. Wow. These ladies probably remember the day they were very young and attractive and thin and probably just seems just like yesterday to them. Just like yesterday. And they look at us like we're babies and well, most of maybe you guys, maybe not me, but like you, you're just so youthful and yet in just a snap of a finger, you're going to be my age or older, but your mind's still going to go, I'm just young. I'm just a kid, but you're not. Your body won't respond in the same ways. And your mind won't be quite as sharp. And a couple of the older guys that were in the line, they were a little grumpy, and I thought, oh, Lord, help me. I don't want to become a grumpy old man. If we don't walk with the Lord, that's inevitably what happens. Anyway, in John chapter 17, this morning... I want to speak specifically about what is it that God wants us to give our lives for. Last night we discussed who God wants us to give our life to. And God wants us to give our life to Him. John chapter 17, verse 18, reads like this. Jesus is praying, by the way, this whole thing in John 17 is the prayer of the Lord Jesus. He says, As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. That little phrase is not hard to memorize. I would underline it. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Now, I have done a lot of thinking about that simple little sentence. First of all, I ask myself the question, what does that sentence mean? Secondly, I ask myself the question, does that sentence apply to moi? You know, to you and me? Because if it does... It has serious ramifications. If it doesn't, 
then it won't mean a whole lot to you, but I'm going to show you with some of the passages why I believe it relates to you and I. So let's stop for a moment and think about the Lord Jesus. We find this in Philippians chapter 2. We find in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is God. I don't have time to get into the doctrine of the Trinity with you this morning or the divineness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. But they are all one. They are all the same. They are all different. And Jesus, in fact, is the judge of the world. Jesus will be the one on the great white throne judging the world. The Bible tells us that God in the book of Acts has given him the authority to judge all mankind. Jesus is also the savior of the world. He also became the little baby. See, think about God for a moment. For, you know, this is so hard to even grasp, but for a billions and billions of eternities, God has been God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, living in unapproachable light, living in this extraordinary place with angels and whatever other beings are there. The book of Revelation gives us a little insight into what other kind of beings are there. And there's these, there's these creatures that just bow before the throne all the day, all saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Glory, glory, glory. The four living elders, amen, amen, amen. Let it be, let it be, let it be. Just God's throne is an extraordinary place. Jesus never had any wants, never had any needs, never had any problems. And, and, and God is just so far above us. You know, we think of ourselves as so great. And we're about as great compared to God as a cockroach compared to us. The difference is astronomical. So God, He makes this great creation. He makes all the planets and He hangs the stars and He speaks the world into being and then He molds mankind. Of course, He made all the animals, but He made you and me and He made us special. He made us significant. He gave us this huge planet and He set this whole thing in motion. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians and throughout the New Testament that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What that means is this. God never intended for Adam and Eve not to blow it. He didn't force them to. He didn't make them to. He created them with the power of choice. And they chose wrong. As a result, if you've been reading the book of Romans in your one-year Bible, sin genetically, genetically, passed down to every man and woman that has ever been born. Of course, Romans tells us that God determined to shut all men up under sin so that God could show mercy to all men. There is not a person in the world that God has not desired to show mercy to. And we either choose to accept or reject His mercy. So God had this all thought out. And then God had this extraordinary scheme, which, you know, I would have never come up with, to take His only begotten Son, that's the relationship that Jesus has with the Father, and kill Him. And kill Him. In fact, um, in my... I, I forgot one of my things. My, my journal, my rotten journal, I wrote down a verse the other day, it says, and we are no longer guilty because it was God's good pleasure to kill Jesus. You know, I stopped and thought about that the other day. 
It, God's good pleasure. God was completely fair and just, it says, when He declared us innocent and Jesus guilty. And that's the heart of God. Of course, that's also the heart of Jesus because He didn't have to do it. And so Christ became this guilt offering for all of us. Well, that, that's just part of it. Jesus, here's God, allows God the Father to stick Him inside of the stomach of a woman, a human, and come out the womb just like all of us. Very frail, no control of His bowels, throwing up whenever He had to, just like you. Had to be taken care of and served by a man and a woman. Had to breastfeed. God breastfeeding. That's a state of just total dependence upon a human being. And he was born, unlike most of us, any of us, in a barn. With manure and flies and bugs. And it wasn't very pretty. And the Bible says they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which is a nice King James name for rags. And this is the king. This is the king, the Messiah, in this barn. And so he grows up, and the Bible makes it kind of clear that, you know, his brothers, he had brothers, by the way, for those of you who were told he didn't, he had other brothers. Half-brothers, of course, because God was his father, not Joseph. And they made fun of him. They laughed at his mission. Jesus continued in subjection to his mother and father. He continued growing in his life. He continued growing in stature with both God and men. Then he grows up, he's 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. Only to be rejected by the very people, first of all, the very creation that he made. But more than that, the special race of people that he called out. Imagine if Jesus walked in here today and said, I'm... God, I'm the Messiah, and he started doing whatever to prove it to you, and we laughed at him and threw stones at him and killed him. I mean, you know, that's what happened to the Lord. And then he died and rose from the dead. So I wrote this down in my little book that I carry around of the critical things that God has been teaching my life. Jesus didn't come into the world to make a life for himself, but to make a life for others. Jesus sends us into the world not to make a life for ourselves, but to make a life for others. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He expects us to die for the salvation of the world. That is, that we would give our lives to perpetuate His message and His love to the world. Death, 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 that others might live. He has given us the sending. You see, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, about starting with about verse 28 through verse 30, Jesus said to his disciples, guys, he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, but all those things in the future, all those material things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like a lily of the valley, and the lily doesn't worry. The sparrow doesn't worry about its food, and yet your Father feeds him, and you are of much more value than a than a sparrow. And then God said, these are the things that the pagans run after. These are the things that the heathen are consumed with. But you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I'll take care of all those things that the heathen give their life to. I'll give you those things. I will 
provide them for you in a variety of ways. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you sit in your room and read your Bible all day and pray and just magically milk and butter and cheese and chips and pop and whatever you eat arrives at your door every day. But the point is, is that God gives us a total reorientation of our lives. A totally different way to live. There was no question when you were around Jesus that He was about His Father's business, right? No question of that. There should be no question of that, someone who knows you. That you are about your Father's business. Because just as the Father sent the Lord, He said, here you go, Jesus, go down there and die. Of course, the Bible tells us to die, doesn't it? The Bible tells us unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. I used to farm in the summer as a job when I was younger. And I did some of the planting and some of the, you know, tilling of the ground. And you till the ground and you put the corn down in there. And before you know what, that little kernel usually put one to three in the little spot there. And the next thing you know, a stalk grows up, a whole field of stalks. And on every stalk might be five to eight ears of corn. And on every ear of corn is a lot of kernels of corn. So what do you want to be? One little kernel? Hold on to your little kernel and be nothing? Or put yourself in God's ground and bear much fruit? And we're talking human lives here. We're not talking kernels of corn. We're talking you surrender your life, you submit your life, and it's reborn in fruit. And that fruit is human lives who come to know Christ, whose lives are turned upside down. And so the process continues. If you think about most people your age, most of them right now are consumed with making a life for themselves. Now, I want to emphasize something here. There's nothing wrong with life preparation. There's nothing wrong with getting adequate or effective training so that the Bible teaches us all throughout the epistles we can work with our own hands and provide for our needs and the needs of others. That is what the Scripture says. So there's nothing wrong with getting a good education or a vocation or having a job. But that does not define us. We simply use that. It is a means to an end. For most Americans, education is a means to their end and their end is things that they want. The good life, the nice life, the American life, full of all of the wonderful creature comforts that are available to us that can take every penny and every dime. But rather, for the person who knows Christ, we use our resources to, one, sustain the life that God gave us, two, help sustain the other lives around us, and three, to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. I've said this before, but God does not fund His own campaign to become president of every person's heart. We are the campaign contributors. And actually, everything we have was given to us by God. It was a gift. The Bible makes it clear, what do you have that you did not receive? Think about this. Your temperament, your personality, your eyes, your hands, your ears, the mind that you think with, the mouth that you talk with, the feet that you walk with, the tongue that you eat with, the teeth that you chew with, all, all the things that sustain your life were given to you by God. The ability to reason, the ability to understand logic, was all given to you by God. You may think, well, I really worked really hard for this. Not quite. You've just had help developing that which was God-given to begin with. 
And so we are a steward. We are in charge. God has entrusted you with a body and a mind and talents. I'll get into that later. And money. And some of that money's for you. Some of that money's to set aside and save for future needs. Some of that money was intended to be shared with others who are in need. As the Bible says, 1 John 3.16. Memorize 1 John 3.16 and John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 said, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If anyone sees his brother, and he's hungry, or he's in need, but does not help him, how does the love of God dwell in him? Very specific. It can't get any clearer than that. Brother, sister needs a car. Brother, here's my car. You need to use the car. I'm not in a position where I can permanently give it to them, but they could use it. You need to use something mine, you can use it. If I have extra or someone really needed it more than I even did, well, here, take it. And then thirdly, God gave us that money to use for the advancement of the gospel, whether it's supporting people, whether it's, uh, you know, buying literature, whether it's sharing, taking someone out to dinner that you might win them to Christ. The Bible, read Luke chapter 16. You know the famous passage that says, he who's faithful in a little will be faithful in much. The whole passage is on money. Money. And it's the story of this manager. This manager worked for this company. And he wasn't doing a very good job with the company, so they were going to let him go. So what he did was he went out to all of the people who owed his company money. He went to the first company and said, look, how much do you owe? You owe, let's see, you owe 10000 All right, right now, I am still in power. I'm going to make it 5000 You only owe five. Wow, thanks a lot. So he erased half the debt. Then he goes to another one, and they owed uh, fifty thousand. He said, "Look, uh, we're going to call it thirty, okay? I'm going to doctor the books. All right, thirty thousand." The owner of the company brings the manager and says, "You were very shrewd. I commend you. You're still fired." <laughs> and then Jesus said, "The children of light are wiser, or the children of darkness are wiser than the children of light." So I say, use the mammon. That's money the money of unrighteousness, to win others so when your money fails, they'll welcome you in eternal dwellings. The point is, we use our money to win people, to buy them into heaven. What do you think IBM and Microsoft and other sales companies, why do you think they have expense accounts? Have you ever wondered that? Why do you think they take you to golf games and, oh, they pay for the fee and, oh, they take you out to dinner? And, you know, it was like, I had a friend one time tell me, you know, one time, Mark, I went to a business dinner. You know what the bill came to? There was like 15 of us. He said, what? He said, $2,000. $2,000. It was approximately $100 per person for the plate. And then it was the drinks on top of that. And why do people do that? To win them to heaven? No. To get a little business. To get a little business. So, the question is, what are you doing with your resources? Where are your resources going? They're God's anyway. And some of them are for you. Don't ever feel bad about that. So you can put clothes on yourself. So you can be presentable to the world because we're God's sales force. And I'm going to get into that later. Okay? So, Jesus was the sacrifice for the world's sins. That's not what we do. We don't sacrifice our life. We're not the sacrificial lamb. We are... We are the propagators of the message. And like the early apostles who all but about two of them were martyred, literally... They died for the advancement of the kingdom. God expects the same of us. 
Although I seriously doubt that many of us here will be martyred. But I like what I think it's Neil Young sings in his song, It's Better to Burn Out Than to Fade Away. I believe that when it comes to the gospel. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Finally, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we give our lives, you see, to advance this message. In Matthew chapter 28, if you'd go there for just a moment, Matthew chapter 28. You see, young person, it's so important that you understand this because you've got to bring a... A, a, an extraordinary amount of focus and single-mindedness to your life. If you don't, you're going to waste it. And so we've got to understand, all right, my life's focused on God, and then what specific task is God asking me to do? We find that in Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> and we're going to start with verse 18. Jesus came and told His disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. That's interesting. Jesus is in charge. In heaven and on earth. Now, that's really what God's trying to get across here. Jesus is commander-in-chief. So, therefore, in light of that, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's one of the primary reasons we baptize people. Jesus commanded. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, get baptized. <coughs> Teach them, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Therefore, go into all the world. I want to make something very clear to all of you. God has the world on His heart. He has the world on His heart. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes. You know, maybe you've watched Channel 2 or you've watched the Disney Channel or the Discovery Channel and you see these tribes of people all over the world and you think to yourself, probably maybe like me, wow, they're backwards over there. Wow, you know, I've been to other countries and probably will be traveling more in this next year to some others I've not been to. And life is just so backwards in other places compared to the United States. We're kind of like the kings of the earth, to be honest. Bill Gates uh, said recently in an article I read that he said, today, the average American lives better than royalty did a hundred years ago. That's really true because of technology, because of the creature comforts that we have. Now, we may not have uh, the people at our disposal that say, go do this and go do that. And we may have giant estates, but, but when you think about what we're comforted with and how we live and how we eat, why, we eat better than royalty. All of you in this room are richer than 98% of all the people in Honduras. Because I've been there and I've seen it. God has the little Honduran child on his heart. God has the little Australian pygmy on his heart. God has the European on his heart. God has the Chinese on his heart. God has the New Zealander on his heart. God has the African on his heart. God has every person on his heart. And he wants them to hear this message. And so Jesus did... The hardest part. He really did. He did the dying. He suffered the wrath of God. He took the onslaught of hell. We don't have to do that. 
and then He empowers us with His Holy Spirit. And Acts 1.8 says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the world. That's our calling, to be witnesses. Hey, Jesus changed my life. Jesus can change yours. You can be a witness. See, it didn't say, And you have been called to be my preachers. Because, you know, a lot of you aren't going to be that. You don't need to feel bad about that. We can all be a witness. You know, we can all be a testifier. We can all give our testimony. We can all love another human being. We can all befriend someone who does not know Christ. We can all pray for someone who does not know Christ. And we can team up with others to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people by doing our part. And your, your part might be setting up equipment. Your part might be keeping track of all the finances. Your part might be setting up all the administrative things that have to be done. Your part might be leading some of the small groups. Your part might be serving the donuts and the coffee and the punch, whatever. Your part might be hanging up posters. We're a team. We do it together. <clears throat> We're called to take it to the world. Now, that, that's something you're going to have to think about because that has implications. I always think it's ironic. You know, I have people say to me, <clears throat> even Christians, they say, you know, Mark, why don't, why don't you move to Arizona? It's really nice down here. Hey, you know, Mark, Southern California is great. British Columbia, I've heard, is really beautiful. I have people say that to me all the time. As if I have a choice! As if I can just get up because I don't like the weather and move somewhere where it's nicer. I am appalled at the reasons Christians move around. I'm sorry. I was under the understanding that we're in the military. I was under the understanding that we go where the generals and the majors and the commander-in-chief lead us to go. I guess I missed something. I didn't know the privates decide where they go when they want to leave. And it's no wonder we're not winning any wars. Imagine for a moment what it would have been like if Desert Storm, if all the guys, you know, I don't know, I don't want to go to Saudi, man. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Virginia. You know, the bus, they go to Virginia. That's called AWOL. You get thrown in jail for that. Oh, Christians, they don't worry about that. Jeez, Lord, don't like the snow. Always oh, going to be where it's warmer. They don't care if anybody down there is trying to reach the world with the gospel. They don't care if they're going to be with a company of men and women that are passionate about God and want to do the will of God. Oh no, here's what they think. Well, I'll find a nice church. Forget nice churches. God wants us involved with people who are going to carry out the will of God. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I got a different... They've gone and got their nice little job, now got their nice little home, got their nice little couple kids, and are barely involved at all. God did not call us to build our lives around Him. You know, or excuse me, to, build, to, to allow Him to fit into our lives. He called us to build our life completely around the will of God. What do you think Jesus, imagine for Jesus for a moment, in the garden as He's sweating great drops of blood and He's thinking about the cross. He says, Ah, oh, Lord, I just really don't want to be here and I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I didn't bargain for this. God, why don't you come down and do it? And he just walked away. 
But instead, of course, we all know what he said. Father, not my will, but yours be done. For years, when I was a young father, I know you, maybe you've heard these stories. You probably get sick of them, but it's the only story I got. So, I was living in Ames, Iowa, and I was, and I was in poverty. For the first ten years of my marriage, I was in poverty, below the poverty level. I stayed there deliberately to get trained. I stayed there deliberately with people who were intent on reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's way. Raising up elders, planting churches that were committed to righteousness, committed to what I believe were the sound teachings of the New Testament. I had a couple chances to leave or at least be gone a whole lot selling. And whether you realize it or not, I probably could have made a lot of money doing that. At the time, I really needed it. Now, now I was getting by you know, because my, my lot rent on my trailer was $73 a month. That's how I did it. $73 a month. In 550 square feet, we lived. None of the windows opened. We had one air conditioner and it would keep it at about 102 in the summer. And the carpeting on my kid's floor I found in a dumpster. They were those little farmer samples, those rubber kind with the backing, all those multicolors. But they were new, so I brought them all home and I stapled them to the floor. And I made their bunk beds out of two-by-fours. Crib-sized bunk beds. And that's what Celeste Jeremy slept on. And I drove a $200 car. You know why I did all that? So today could be happening. That's why I did all that. I wasn't going to sell my birthright and my inheritance and what I could have had for a little more money at the time. And I made really tough choices. And you know what? This all comes down to choices. This all comes down to whether or not you're going to make really tough choices to join with other people and give your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. I mean, the rubber's always got to meet the road. You know, most Christians just go, geez, Mark, you know, can't we just, can't I have my cake and eat it too? No, usually you can't. Usually you can't. Greg, I think, is a good example of this. Greg had a lot of cake before he started doing this. Let me tell you, God blessed him. He's a hard worker. And he was making more money than most of you are ever going to make. And he walked away to make less than a fourth of it. So he could be doing this. Now, you may not have to do that. You may work a job like Greg had at Consent and still be part of the body. But what I'm saying is it all comes down to choices. I specifically have advised young people, and you can take this or leave it, by the way. But I wouldn't become a doctor, a lawyer, an architect. That's just my advice. You know why? Because they want your life. My wife's cousin is a, one of the finest plastic surgeons in all of Kansas. His first three years out of med school, he worked 115 hours a week. And after that, you can average about 90. I'm sorry, but that doesn't leave much time for advancing the kingdom, does it? It doesn't involve much time for being involved in kingdom business. Is he doing something significant? Sure. Sewing people's fingers back on, that's his specialty. Is that a nice thing? Sure it is. Does he get to share the gospel with many of them? No. No. 
You're going to have to figure out, you know, what you want to do. I would strongly advise you to get a vocation that doesn't suck the life out of it. I would strongly advise you to get an education that allows you to make pretty good money, but doesn't own you. Do not sell your soul to the company. Your soul's God's. Your life's God's. Now, if you can do those things, hey, and you can work 40, 50 hours a week, and you have time to focus on other things that also matter in life, do it. But if you can't, you're smart. You're sharp young people. Choose something different. Think about something different. Now, there's a lot of Christians that look at this passage. You know what they think? They think to themselves, um, this just applies to the 11 disciples, right? Because it says here, Mark, in context, the 11 disciples left. They were on the mountain. Jesus was speaking to them. Well, there's one reason why it doesn't apply just to them. Go down to verse 29 or 20. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. What does that mean? That means that whatever I told you 12 guys to do, you teach all the new disciples to do the same. Does that make sense? You follow that? Nod your head if you follow that. It's important that you follow that. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. I want to show you one other verse, and this is the um, this is one of my life verses. Life verses, Acts twenty, verse twenty-four. Paul is writing here. I want to go to start in verse twenty-two. And now I am going to Jerusalem, drawn there irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit has told me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. Now, now I just want to ask you a question. If God told you that all that lies ahead for you everywhere you go is jail and suffering, what would you do? What would you do? You ever thought about that? Now, I really, I'm, I really think about these things. I read these things, Paul, and I always pause. And I go, my gosh, this is a real guy like me, like you, real person. And this really happened to him in city after city. Paul was what I refer to as a walking scar. They didn't have plastic surgeons or the kind of sutures that you can get today. He had been beaten many, many times. He'd been whipped. And on top of that, the Bible says, he'd been whipped three times, 39 or 40 less one, 39 lashes. And the reason they didn't give you the extra is because usually the extra killed you. The Romans had it down to an art. And usually they knew they could give you 39, you'd pass out, but you wouldn't die. But they found through torture and experimentation that when they gave you the 40th, it killed you. Paul was just shredded, you know what I mean? And then he'd been stoned. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a rock. You ever been hit? When I was a kid, I was having a dirt clod fight with some friends. I was just only about seven, and we lived in California then. We were on this big mound of dirt, and we're throwing and somebody threw a dirt clod... The problem was, in the dirt clod was a rock. You know how dirt clods, they kind of break when they hit you? This didn't break. Instead, blood starts spurting out of my head, and I grab my head, they start screaming, and you know it cakes in your hair. And I run home, my mom thought I was dying, you know, and she starts screaming, and then realizes it's just a little cut on my head. When you get stoned, you get covered, you get pelted by thousands of rocks. And Paul was left for dead. Now look what Paul says. Now look what he says. But my life is worth nothing 
unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. That is the heart cry of every true disciple. Lord, my life is worth nothing unless I use it joined with others for telling them about the good news. That's what our life's about. And we use every opportunity for that. Whether maybe your God gave you athletic ability and, and maybe you're on the athletic field or you're still in school and you use it there, whatever, you use every opportunity that's given to reflect glory back to Jesus Christ, to be a living witness, a living testimony in the, what you say and in the way you act, that there is a God and He cares about them. And that's the work that God has assigned to us. That's the task. Bringing the gospel to the world. That's the task. Okay? Now I want you to turn, if you would, really quick to 2 Peter. And then I'm just going to give you some points, some practical application of what we can do here. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want you to see this. I'm going to read this from my little Berkeley New Testament because I, I like it better. In this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 through 17. I implore you, dear friends. Implore means I plead and I beg. As aliens and exiles, and that's what we are. We are aliens and we're exiles on this planet. Keep from gratifying fleshly desires such as wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves well among the Gentiles so that although they may defame you as a criminal, they may see your good works and glorify God in the day He visits us. Be submissive to every human institution for the Lord's sake, whether the emperor as supreme or to governors as commissioned by Him to bring criminals to justice and to encourage the well-behaved. For this is God's will, that by behaving well, you should silence the ignorance of thoughtless people, enjoy liberty, not by employing freedom to cover up wickedness, but use your freedom to be a slave of God. Treat everyone honorably, have love for the brothers, revere God, respect the emperor. Now that's a very specific passage, isn't it? Very clear what it means. First of all, he says, I beg you, live as an alien and a stranger. You know why, how we live as an alien and stranger? By not giving in to all the passions that everyone else gives in you. That's why they think we're so weird. You've probably, maybe you've had a person ask you, maybe at your job, why, why aren't you sleeping around? Why don't you come to the, and they think you're weird. You are weird. You are weird. Wear it with pride. You are different. They wonder why you don't laugh at the same things they laugh at. They wonder why you don't spend your time watching the same pathetic, filthy television shows they watch. You didn't see that there? No, you know, I, just, I got other things going on. You're weird. Yes, you are. In those days, they would have called you an alien. You're strange. You're... But notice what he says. These desires wage war against your soul. How many of you have ever felt like your body's at war? Yes? Good. Good. That's a good thing. You know why? Because you're trying to live for God. You're trying to live for God. And there's a war that wages inside you between this pathetic flesh that only wants its own gratification and this new person that you really are inside wants to live for God. 
It wants to live and honor God. Then he goes on to say this. Conduct yourself well among the Gentiles. Gentile, whenever it says that, refers to non-Christians. That's what a Gentile meant in the New Testament. Gentile. The Jewish people referred to all non-Jews as Gentiles and sinners. Because automatically you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. You're a heathen. And that's what it means. Okay? Conduct yourself so well that though they may defame you, that's interesting, isn't it? See, even though you're conducting yourself well, people are going to defame you. And then notice the verse I wanted to get to was live as slaves of God. God wants all of you. Now, why don't you write this on your piece of paper? Consider myself full-time for God. Consider myself full-time for God. God expects the same from you as He does from me. There is no difference in God's eyes between you and me. Me and you. We are all meant to be bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And we are all meant to think of ourselves as a full-time servant of Christ. So, I want to give you seven things here that you can do, practically speaking, to be involved in this global mission, taking local action. Okay? Number one, Number one, commit to becoming a radical, revolutionary, Christ-like, Paul-like Christian. I'll say it again. Commit to becoming a radical, revolutionary, Christ-like, Paul-like Christian. And pay whatever price it costs. Pay whatever price it costs. And I I do want you to know it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, okay? You're going to have to sacrifice things. It's going to cost you some of your selfish desires. It's going to mean that things in your personality traits and, and temperament things, you're going to have to change. Number two, devote yourself to your local church. Serve them and unite with them for bringing the gospel to the world. Now, practically speaking, that would be the rock. Some of you are headed out this summer for your school year. Get involved in a good church there. But I'm hoping, I'm praying, I'll just be very honest, you know, with my secret prayers for you, is that you get done with college, you come back to Minneapolis, get a job. A lot of good jobs in Minneapolis. And get involved with the group of people that you know are committed to do this in a way that will work. A lot of people who are trying to do things that are just aren't working, they're archaic. Number three, pray for and reach out to your friends. Use your harvest list. I saw some of you are sitting around and they're in your Bible, they're in your journal. Listen, get that harvest list. Pray for and reach out to at least five friends. Pray for five by name. Just say, Lord, I just pray for blah, 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 five names. That you'd save them. Or you'd work in their heart and you would give me an opportunity to share my faith with them. The chances are very, very good that in the next year, at least two of them, if you do that regularly, will probably come to know Christ. Begin reaching out now. Also, let me just share this with you. Some of you strategically 
God is placed with a number of international people. People from other countries. Maybe you're a, uh, teaching in a college. Maybe you work in a field where there's a lot of people from China or from other places of the world. Put some of them on your harvest list. Do you know why? They already know the language. And Lord willing, we could, we could see some of them come to Christ, get involved in the rock, see them trained, and send them back to their country to plant churches. So think strategically. Alright? Number four. <clears throat> prepare yourself now. So when you're done with school, you can help plant and establish churches. And I'm speaking now specifically to college students, but to all of you, whether you're in college or out of college, be preparing now. Prepare your life. Learn everything you can learn. Devour the tapes. Devour the Word. Memorize the Word. Ask questions. Allow yourself to be molded so that you can help plant churches. Get involved now learning the system. The reason, let me just share this with you. The reason the rock, the rock is a system. That's all the rock is. It's a method. It's a method. It's one method that I believe God's given us that I'm convinced will be very effective reaching this generation. That's why I'm interested in franchising it for nothing. We don't charge a franchise fee. McDonald's has been one of the most successful companies in the world. Everyone else has copied McDonald's. Everyone. Burger King, Arby's, all of them. What do they do? They develop the system. Any person behind the counter can work the system. They develop the system. And then they take the system and they're making billions because of it. I'm not interested in billions at all. We're interested in billions of lives. And so what we try to do is develop a system. So So we've got a list of all this sound equipment. So all the future rock people that started, we just hand them a list, say, buy this. We have the songs. It's all on disc. Here's the songs to sing. Sing these. We have videos made ahead of time. If they can't make them, here, use these for laughter. Laughter is real important to young people. We keep a list of all those series. Here's some ideas. You don't have to do them. Share what you want, but these would be some ideas you could start with. We have a small group manual on a disc. Boom. Here it is. Do your small groups just like this. Train your people just like this. Why do we do that? So that we can multiply this over and over. And some of you, you're on the ground floor, see? You're learning it right here, the original. And my prayers in the years to come then, we'll send out 20, 30, 40 of you at a time and we'll begin starting them in other places. Or with joining with other people who are doing the same. Number five, go on short-term mission trips. We are going to try, and this is another thing that we're going to be working on, is uh, to organize some mission trips that you can be part of, rock mission trips, to some of the countries I go to, particularly Honduras and Latin America. But we might eventually take some to Europe as well. So I want you to think about that. It'll broaden your view of the whole world. Number six, prepare your heart, soul, and mind through prayer and reading your one-year Bible and writing in your journal. This is so essential. Do not neglect this. Prepare your own mind, your own heart, you know, you, you, you see me when I'm here in public with you. What you don't see, what you could not see, are the hours that I've spent alone in my garage, alone at Fort Snelling, alone in a cornfield, praying for you, for others, crying out to God. What you haven't seen is the private decisions that I had to make to die to myself, What you haven't seen is God taking the chisel and the hammer to Mark, pounding me down through my 
marriage and my relationships and refining my life. All that's the preparation. If you're not willing to do that, walk away now. Because that's what it's going to take. A personal devotion on your part to be close to God, to know the Lord, to seek the Lord, to walk with the Lord, and to go after God. And that means you're going to have to make some hard decisions with your time, and it's not always easy to do because, you know, you come home from work just like anybody else, and you're tired. When you're tired, your defenses are down. It's real easy to turn the TV on. It's real easy to get, grab a pop, grab some chips, grab whatever. Just sit down in a chair. Veg out for the next two or three hours. Then a friend calls. Hey, you want to do something? Yeah, let's go to a movie. Go to a movie. It's real easy to do that seven nights a week, every day of the month for the rest of your life. And I'm not lying to you. Just a little change. You, you know, maybe eventually get married and then you come home and you plop down and play with the kids. There's nothing wrong with playing the kids. But pretty soon what you're going to find in your day is, gee, there's just not time for God, Mark. There's not time to really go seek the Lord. Just not time to really develop my walk with God. You're going to have to make the time. Number seven. This applies to some of you easier than others. If you have the chance now, learn a foreign language, especially if you're in college right now. Especially if you're in college. Learn Russian. Learn German. Learn French. Some of you already know Spanish. Chances are very slim we're going to head down south. Just because the guys I work with there are already know the language. It's, they live there already. And they've got a whole slew of guys that want to reach out down there. So we'll help them accomplish their goals. But where we'll, we will probably aim in the future is Europe. And other countries. Pick a language that God may lay on your heart. Number eight. Develop your talents and gifts. <clears throat> you know, it's been really exciting to see The Rock using so many different talents of the people here in this group. Whether it's the videos, whether it's, you know, I, I don't want to embarrass Todd. So Todd, don't, I'm not trying to embarrass you if you're out there somewhere. But I remember when I first met Todd. I remember when I first met Chad. Chad basically came off the street and landed in Evergreen. I have no idea really how he ever ended up at Evergreen. But he did. And and Chad was just a pot-spoken, ultra-dead head. That was Chad Altman. So, I mean, how he, how the Evergreen fit, I'm, I've never been sure. But he ended up. And about three weeks after that, I was doing a series, he got saved. And I started doing a group then called uh, Life Changers, and it was on Tuesday nights. I think it was Tuesdays. Again, I forget. But it was, it was one of these nights. And... Uh, Chad would come. It was two hours. And what I would do is I would answer any questions anybody wanted to ask for an hour, and then I would usually share something uh, that I had for them to help them change their life. He came. started bringing Todd. Todd got saved. I had no idea when we started The Rock that Todd played the harmonica, the guitar. is at least as funny as Chris Farley. I mean, I just had no idea of any of that. And he may have thought to himself, to be real honest, Todd and Chad, both before they came to Christ, they were just wasting their life. It was wasted. Completely wasted. Many of you were the same way. You've got all kinds of talents. You may not think of bookkeeping as a talent, but some of you have that. You may not think of administration as a talent, but Pam, this is about the most well-run conference I've ever been to, and she did most of it. Right? See? 
develop those talents and abilities. Develop them. Develop them. If you have musical ability, develop them. If you want to, you know, for I was t- sharing this with high school students that I was just with, so some of you it's a little late in the game. But specifically, we need four kinds of musicians. We need drummers, bass players, keyboards, and guitar. Particularly those four. The, this band is as significant as the building. I could have Blake. If we didn't have the band, I wouldn't have even planted the rock. The band is what we build this thing on. Music is what opens the door for me to preach. Without it, we're dead. And I've been telling that all over the country, telling this to young people. You want to join this endeavor in the future, master an instrument. Develop it. Develop it. So that we can start these churches off with bands. Okay? Whatever other talents you might have, you might have people talents, develop them. Whatever they are. And the ninth one, I guess I had more than I thought, is keep your heart soft to the needs of human beings. Stay informed about the world. Do not let your heart get hard. Keep informed about what's going on around the world. Read. Watch the news. Let your heart be moved. I don't know how else to describe it, but that. I, so many Christians, they're just so uninformed. They just have no idea. At the same time Columbine happened, we're so caught up with our world in India, a hundred of the upper caste members went to a little town and killed 50 lower caste members just because they didn't like them and they weren't in their caste. Some of us have no idea that in Somalia and the Sudan that the most atrocious, dehumanizing thing happens to little girls every day that are seven to eight years old when they have their genitals cut off. And it's sick and it's pathetic and it's pagan. And the only thing that's going to change it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember the night that I was sitting on my couch just thinking I was going to have a nice time reading the Reader's Digest and I read the story of this woman, this stunningly gorgeous model who finally shared her story of the pain. In the end, so I'm not going to get more graphic than read it. It gets far more graphic what they do to these women. And sick. The world is full of sick minds. You know what? Most of you don't even know it. Sometimes when we know it, we don't let it bother us. I want to tell you something. Until you get bothered, you'll never do a damn thing with your life. Until you get burdened, until something starts to really bother you, you will never be moved to do anything to help anybody. The reason we started The Rock, the reason we started Evergreen, was because I was bothered. I was burdened that we have the greatest message in the world and nobody's getting it. Until you realize that suburban America driving their little Lexus and their little Honda passports and their little, you know, new Mercedes SUVs are so hollow and so empty inside that that never starts to bother you. Then you'll just do the things in life that bother you. And the things that bother you are what you want, your cravings. It bothers me that I don't have more to eat. It bothers me that I'm driving this old car. It bothers me that I don't have a nicer house. And so you'll just start doing whatever bothers you. But whatever bothers you, whatever cravings you have, you'll give to those. 
There's a story told. I'm going to end with this. Oh, there's one more thing. Then I'll end. Some of you have never heard of D.L. Moody, but D.L. Moody was the greatest evangelist probably you'd ever lived, probably even greater than Billy Graham. He traveled so many miles in a, in a different time. And, and he literally shook the world for, for God. He would speak without amplification to crowds of 30,000. Dio Moody was uh, based out of Chicago. He landed in Chicago as a little kid. He was an orphan. And um, God changed his life. And So he had a real heart for little children. In those days, the migrant, not the migrants, but the uh, immigrants that moved over were in unbelievable poverty. The Poles, the Germans, the Irish. I mean, they treated it as vile. It was vile. These were shanty towns, unlike anything you've seen only maybe in Soweto, South Africa. What you see on TV. So he would go and he would, he would form these massive Sunday schools. He would ride a horse. He would give the kids horse rides. All the other Christians, they'd make fun of Dio Moody. And he has pictures of, the, I've got some old black and white pictures of these little street urchins, they would call them. And he pretty soon he had 5,000 of them coming. Besides all the other things that he was doing. One day these other pastors, they came to Dio Moody's office. His church was growing by leaps and bounds and theirs were not. They were Christians sharing the gospel. And they asked D.L., they said, D.L., that's what they'd call him, D.L., they'd say, what is your secret? What We're sharing the gospel. What's the deal? And D.L. Moody said to them, there's about five of them, he said, well, I want you to go over the window, and I want you to look out, and I want you to tell me what you see. So the first one looked out, he said, well, I, I see a, a street dimly lit, and there's a carriage right now. It's just clip, clop, clip, clop, the horse is walking by. Okay, so he asked the second one, what do they see? And so on and on, each person went, each told what they saw. Once in a while, I see a couple of young romantics down on the street, and they're, you know, kissing under the lamp. The next one said something else. Dale Moody, he went to the window, and he looked out the window, and without saying a word, he started to cry. This grown man. These men were kind of taken aback, and he turned, and he said, well, I only see one thing. I see people going to hell. And it breaks my heart. The reason so many Christians are so fruitless is because it doesn't break their heart. 